Bibles, you can turn back now to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Excuse me. Jesus Christ changes everything. That was the major implication of Luke 5, 27 to 39, where we left off before Advent. He calls tax collectors, the most reviled in that society, into his service. He makes them his own disciples and heralds, and this so enrages the spiritual elite of Israel, the scribes and Pharisees, the real Christians, if you will, that they begin to openly question whether or not Jesus is legitimate with that question they asked about fasting. Their their disciples fasted. John the Baptist's disciples even fasted. But your disciples, Jesus, they don't fast. Fasting was what people who were really serious about God did. Not only did they do the fasts required by the law, they added a few more to show the depth of their devotion to God. But it meant nothing because as with all their outward works of service, they trusted those things as righteousness that God would accept. That when God saw it, He would know they were the real deal and count it or credit it to their account, which is precisely what we still do today with all kinds of rules that we make and rules that we try to follow. But in 534 to 39, Jesus declared that he had brought a revolution in the way that people serve God and become righteous. And it's just that, a whole new system that not only is better than the old way of serving God and becoming righteous through the law, it has no resonance with the law. They're completely different things. The way of Christ and the way of the law are like new pieces of fabric and old pieces of fabric. Old garments. They're like old wine and new wine. Like old wineskins and new wineskins. In other words, they cannot be mixed or you will ruin them both. If you try to mix becoming righteous through following the law with Jesus, you'll eventually have to dumb down the law to silly man-made rules that we are able to keep. Because the law that comes from God, we'll discover, if we're honest, is far too holy and righteous and good to follow in our own strength. Even with the Holy Spirit, or we would do it, and we usually don't. So in the name of becoming really religious and spiritual, we'll end up making a mockery of what the law actually is. But, if we try to mix Jesus with the law... We'll end up calling the sufficiency of the cross into question and tie ourselves and others down with the burdens of earning their own righteousness even after Jesus through the law and send people running into fear and doubt, making a mockery of Jesus as our forgiveness and our righteousness. Jesus makes all things new, even what it means to serve God and what it now looks like to be a righteous person. That's what these first two sections in Luke 6 are illustrating. The newness Jesus brings, of which He spoke at the end of chapter 5, as the one who brings with Him a new way of serving God in light of His salvation. Jesus is the Lord of the rest God has always intended to give His creation. Let me pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for its perfection and authority and inspiration and infallibility. God, we praise You. We thank You for the Word that gives life. Lord, I ask You to help me preach Your Word this morning. God, not my own. To bring those that are here a message from You, not from me. So God, please be with me as I speak. Please be with the rest as we listen. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat? And also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. If there was anything 
that marked an Israelite as a servant of God, it was his or her treatment of the holy Sabbath day. Jesus and his disciples were walking through some grain fields, and the disciples probably, we can take from the text, having seen their master do this, are snacking on the heads of grain as they walk. That wasn't against the law in and of itself, really, since Deuteronomy 23:25 permitted that type of thing while people were traveling, right? The issue that arises for the Pharisees, who apparently are following him, is that this is taking place on the Sabbath. And in their minds, picking up and rubbing heads of grain to eat was work. It was reaping and threshing. Now, the Scripture didn't teach that, but the Pharisees had filtered Sabbath law through their own traditions of right and wrong. And so this is one of the 39 kinds of work the Mishnah, this rabbinic book of rules, had forbidden to do on the Sabbath. They added 39 stipulations, to be specific, to what it meant to work on the Sabbath. Again, they made more rules to keep you from breaking the law that was given. The law is written, apparently then, what does that imply? It was not enough to make people righteous. Right? It, it, it wasn't going to keep you from breaking the law. It needed their input, their knowledge, their convictions, like we do today. We do this today. We do it in our church covenants. We do it in our church constitutions. We say things that Scripture has not. We imply more where Scripture has been silent. We put a comma where God has put a period. This is what we do when we hold each other's consciences captive to our own personal convictions. Right? Because this is my conviction and I consider it to be holy and righteous and good. If you don't do it, you aren't holy and righteous and good. We think we have to safeguard the righteousness of others. Why? Because we don't have faith in the power of the Holy Spirit to sanctify believers. That's what that is. Right? You, you, you have to create more than what the Bible says because as we think, well, the Bible doesn't address every issue and every danger, and so we have to do that. And yet God has promised to meet all our needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So to create rules is to doubt the authority of God's Word, whether we say with our mouths we believe and confess the authority and inspiration of Scripture. Not when it comes to personal convictions, we don't, right? We need those in order to stay on the right track. In light of that, because it was just the same back then, take special note of the Pharisees' question in verse 2. Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Luke 6 is coming right out of Luke 5. Right? What Jesus said is, remember, if you take what I'm bringing and try to mix it or patch it onto the old, you're going to destroy both. And so you get these two examples right out of the gate of people trying to do both in light of the fact that Christ has come. For the Pharisee in the time of Jesus, and for the Pharisee today in our modern Christian culture, the main question the Christian has to be able to answer is, what is lawful? Are you allowed to do that or not? And we live our whole Christian lives. Can I, I don't, can I, right? What is lawful? What is right and wrong? And I need you to tell me that, preacher, so that I might pick right and shun wrong because I'm a Christian and that's what Christians do. Again, this is the steady diet of most Christian books and preachers and social media Facebook posts. That's what most are going to be putting out because it has a wide, hungry audience for that kind of thing. There are, I mean, there's, there's, there's preachers that just teach, you know, like, Kara referenced earlier, name it, claim it, just pure false doctrine, idolatry. Then there's the more subtle stuff that is the more dangerous, right? Um, I'm not not saying that everybody that says those things is like not a Christian or something. I'm saying that, that normally there's a steady diet of like if you listen to like a John MacArthur, right? I used to just consume everything he wrote. Everything he and John MacArthur and John Piper, whatever they wrote, whatever they said, I was trying to regurgitate it, right? Um, but their aim is to make sure, hear me out, that you doubt your salvation. Because that's the only way to motivate you to be as perfect as you need to be and would be if you were serious about following God. So it's just a steady diet of you need to do this, 
you need to do that. If you're not doing this, you're not the real thing. And so they're always, what, what is that message? The message is safeguarding, right? Protecting you from giving in to your own sinfulness, which apparently they don't struggle with because they have the clarity to be telling all of you what you should be doing all the time. Make sure you're doing this. You better be doing this. You better not be doing this. If you were doing this, real Christians, people, you know, it, it's all that type of language. John MacArthur's on my mind. He said this with a straight face. This is a quote. Obedience is the only validation of your salvation. It is the only possible proof that you recognize the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Think of how exclusive that language is. Obedience is the only validation of your salvation. It is the only possible proof that you recognize the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, do you see how quickly justification by faith alone is cast aside in the name of obedience? So faith, that's not evidence. That doesn't justify. Only obedience. Now, if you ask them, do you believe in justification by faith alone? Yes. But there's somehow a difference between justification and sanctification, that if you don't do this, then you aren't actually justified. So it's just salvation by works under a different label. Faith is an evidence of salvation. You and your obedience are evidence of salvation. Now, here's the thing. For people like John MacArthur or that kind of teaching that honestly believe they can obey at that high of a level that you could look to it for your assurance and know that you're in because you obey enough. Those types of folks love sentences like that. They want sentences like that. They need sentences like that because they actually think they can do it. They have all the confidence in the world and would rather have the preacher challenge them and be cut down by a sermon than encouraged to trust in Christ alone. Why? Because they trust in their own repentance. They trust in their own desire to be righteous. You see, wanting to be encouraged to look to Christ, that's for the weaklings. That's for the people that sin so much, they doubt. Right? If you're not sinning so much, you're not doubting so much. So if I understand that correctly... The more you can look to your obedience, the more assurance you will have. So eyes off Christ, eyes on your obedience. That sounds to me like you're trying to take righteousness through the law and sew it onto the garment of the new creation. So that ilk, that those that are driven by that, they're always going to be asking, what is lawful? But what had Jesus just taught in Luke 5? That that is no longer the main question. The one God sent to be our salvation, He has come to address our sinfulness and shortcomings according to the law and what is lawful. That's precisely why He came. We are not people trying to become righteous on our own through obeying the law. And you can't tack that on to salvation by grace through faith alone. You're doing precisely what Jesus said not to do or that you can't do or you'll ruin both. Yes, it's that, but it's also you've just taken two things that don't go together and you've tried to join them into one. That's what they're doing by asking this question. There's no thought of who Jesus is or what Jesus has come to do. It's Are you allowed to do that? Are you allowed to do that? The one God sent to be our salvation has come to be the law's fulfillment for us. He's come to obey for us. So, so does that mean we, we don't have anything to talk about when it comes to good works and obedience? Of course we do. We'll get to that. Hear Jesus. Yes, we will do good works, but what is lawful? That, that's no longer the main question. Are you allowed to do that? That's no longer the main question for the Christian. The main question now, when Jesus was asked in John 6, what must we do to be doing the works of God? In John 6, 29, the answer is, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. That's what Jesus said. So that's the thing we need to worry about. 
first and foremost. Do I trust that Jesus is who he says he is and did what he said he came to do? Jesus Christ has come to be the main focus of our salvation through the eyes of faith that takes hold of both all our forgiveness and all our righteousness. See, he does both. He takes care of the law for us. He takes care of our sin for us. So our good works are going to be flowing from a finished work, not a partial work. We no longer do good works and serve God out of fear of being lawful. But out of the joy of freedom. Because His yoke, there is a yoke, but it's easy. And His burden, there is a burden, is light. We are at rest now in Christ. We work from rest now. We don't work to try to prove anything or be accepted by God. We work because we have been accepted. We work because we are at rest. The concern is no longer, can I, oh, oh, it's, it's no longer fear and bondage. You're no longer motivated. See, the new covenant doesn't work like that. If you do, you're in. If you don't, you're out. No, that's the old way. And if you try to mix even using guilt, and fear as the means to motivate obedience, you're not going to get obedience that pleases God. You're going to get obedience that doesn't come from faith, but comes from fear. And what doesn't come from faith is sin. Stop sinning by trying so hard to be righteous in your own flesh and by your own effort. How does Jesus answer the Pharisees now? In Luke 6, how does He answer that question? His answer in verses 3-5 through tells the Pharisees, that there is a kind of adherence to the law that is so focused on the self that it misses the very essence of the command. When we try to obey with no thought of who God is for us in Christ, when we try to obey with no thought of His nature or His character in light of the fact that He sent Christ to save us, when we try to obey as a means to our own righteousness, we become rigid and unmerciful and it gets worse over time. We would even look at people that are eating because they're hungry and say, are you allowed to do that or not? The Lord did not give commands to give us life. That's not what the commands are for. The command was to increase our trespasses, Paul said. It's the ministry that brings death to our own inflated sense of righteousness and goodness, so that, not so that we wouldn't care about good works anymore, but so we would run to the one he sent to be our righteousness for us. When God's beloved son David and those who were with him were hungry and in need of food in 1 Samuel, which is what Jesus is referencing here, on the run, by the way, from a tyrant, who thought he had earned his place as king. The law about not eating the bread of the presence, which is in the law, it's lawful. You don't, only the priest can eat the bread of the presence. But when David, God's beloved child, and his men are hungry, that law, you set it aside. Why is that law no longer binding on David and those who are with him? Because God cares more about providing what we need for us than exacting obedience from us. That's what Christ is doing for you right now. You see, Christ is meeting the gaps that you have between you and God for you right now. That's your motivation for good works. That's your motivation for serving. What is lawful is the, what's lawful has been taken care of by Christ. By faith for David, by faith for you and I. David looks forward, you and I look back. Now who determines what is lawful or not, now that Christ has come? Certainly not the Pharisees, and certainly not you and I. That's the danger of making rules that don't exist. God doesn't need us to step in and say, Now, God, you didn't think about this, but you're also going to have to cover this or this is going to keep happening. It's insanity. It's insanity. 
Who determines what is lawful or not? Not the Pharisees, not you and I. It wasn't even the high priest. It was God. Well, if David was allowed to eat, who is Jesus? He's the Lord of the Sabbath. That means Jesus will determine what is lawful or not on the Sabbath. Not us. Especially not us. If we're determining what's lawful on the Sabbath, people will go hungry and die. Right? Because we honestly think that our works of righteousness are more important, more valuable than what God, than who God is and what God has provided. We will break bruised reeds and quench smoldering wicks all day long if we're the ones determining what is lawful or not. We are called to have faith in Jesus, who is the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of rest. Jesus who takes tax collectors and sinners and makes them his own. And here's the thing. He is allowed to eat the bread of the presence. He is allowed to pluck heads of grain on the Sabbath And so are those who are with him. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the rightful king. No one in their man-made laws or interpretations of God's law determines for you what you may eat, for example. Jesus does that. Our own rules and regulations are not necessary, nor is our bragging about them and talking about them to make sure others know how lawful we are. Right? As the Pharisees did. Everybody knew the rules they didn't break and the rules they kept. Why? Because they talked about it all the time. That was their ministry. Do this, don't do this. Do this, don't do this. That saves nobody and corrupts the person doing it. Christians, we have a Lord. We have a King. And He is enough for us in the righteousness conversation. He is enough for us in the forgiveness conversation. The new has come. You see, the old has passed away. The new has come. And they can't coexist. When the new comes, the old has to go. We have to be extremely careful about how we teach good works now that Christ has come. Lest we go against Jesus without even realizing it. Luke gives another illustration of the power and prerogative of Jesus for us. Look in verse 6 there. On another Sabbath, so this is a thing Luke is doing, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful? This is vintage Jesus. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus asking, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury. Really? And discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. And everybody in this room knows what they did to Jesus. Because you are not going to mess up our works righteousness system, man. We'll kill you. We'll kill you. That's how serious we are about righteousness. We'll commit murder. We'll see people starve. We'll leave people with withered right hands. Don't you go healing for free when it's supposed to be a day of rest. Does it sound to you like they understand rest at all? How unrestful are they? Filled with fury. Watching Jesus. Busy, 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 busy. Now Jesus asks, what is lawful? Now the Lord of the Sabbath is telling us what is actually lawful on the Sabbath. Remember Mark's Version of this story, it's not a different version. Mark includes more of what was said here. Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was not made for man, but man for the Sabbath. 
Jesus said. We weren't made to keep a law. That's not what the Sabbath is about. I'm going to give you a list of rules, you keep them, and we're fine. That's not what God is doing in the Sabbath commandment. We were made to know God's rest. And Christ was sent to provide it for us. When Jesus is not believed upon, we take it upon ourselves to set all the boundaries. When Jesus is not enough, we compensate for what we consider to be, without saying it out loud, His shortcomings. Because He just isn't aware of how the potential we all have for evil if you let us play a little bit. He created us. He knows you and I much better than we know ourselves. So we often do what the Pharisees were doing in verse 7. We watch and look for reasons to create and give more law. We monitor others, whether others are enough. right? Which, again, that's why so many authors and preachers are always writing about and saying such things. There, there's a market for that. We all still default to trying to take what's new and sew it onto an old garment. That's, that's what we do. So I need, tell me what to do. Give me more to do. You don't want application to be have faith. You want application to be do this, 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 and this. And then, then, then you can have what Jesus promised to give you for free. After you've worked, after you've clocked in and done your time, after you clock out, then you can have rest. Right? Somebody has to keep us all in line. Or we might enjoy this rest a little too much. And so where Jesus is giving this rest, we're, we're pulling people back to the plow. Come on. That's enough resting. Back to the plow. Where is the Spirit of Jesus in the church? When we ask what is lawful, we mean what can we do or not do? What can we say or not say? What can we eat or not eat? What can we drink or not drink? Again, all things that people of other religions can also buckle down and do. It does not take the Holy Spirit for you to say, I'm not going to go to those kinds of places. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to eat that. I'm not going to drink that. That doesn't take the Holy Spirit. Other religions have the same type of laws. They do it all the time. Most of them follow a lot better than we do. See, we're going to get into this because that's not what Jesus says through the Word. That's not how you'll know a Christian. You say, well, know them by their fruits. Hmm. Were fruits ever listed out? Yeah, we're going to get to that. And then we're going to see, if we're willing to be honest with ourselves, who really has enough fruit to say they're a Christian. If that's the scale we want to play on. Right? That's what is lawful now that Jesus has fulfilled the law for us. What's lawful now? That Jesus has fulfilled the law for us and calls us to walk by the Spirit. Not by our own measuring. That we may not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Isn't that interesting? You won't fulfill the lust of the flesh by creating rules to keep you from not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. Paul takes that up in Colossians 2. Right? We think in order to fight the lust in my flesh, I'm going to need a rule book. Paul says that looks like wisdom. It sounds like wisdom. It's not. It's worthless. It will do nothing in stopping the indulgence of your flesh. For that, you need to walk by faith, not by sight. You need to walk by the Spirit, which is a different way of walking than the old way of law. Right? You see what he's doing. The rest of the New Testament after the Gospels is explaining how Jesus is new. Beloved, we have to believe the Word of God. It, you will not become more righteous by creating more rules. You won't do it. Stop doing it. It's a lie. Satan is lying to you. And we believe him because deep down inside, the old Adam is still kicking. And we want it to be that way. What did Adam and Eve, what were they not supposed to eat of? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's not for you and I to figure out. Leave it in the hands of God. And when we took of that knowledge, we've been killing each other ever since. Literally. The very next chapter, Cain kills his brother. Why? Because God accepted his offering, which was an offering of faith. 
Beloved, it's all right in front of us. What does Scripture call on the believer to be like? Let's let Scripture tell us, okay, here's what you should look like. For us, that's determined by what you do and don't do, where you go and can't go, what you wear and can't wear, and all that. And it's not that the Bible has nothing to say about those things, but they're not the way to be righteous before God. That's not why we do good works. That's not why we have standards, and we do have standards, but that's not why. When we treat that, those things as our means of righteousness, that's when it goes off the rails. And everybody says, I don't do that. Yes, we do. Like, how is it even an argument at this? Yes, we do that. We have these things we live by, and when we see other people not doing them, we think, hmm. Right? I remember I saw my Aunt Mary, who, who was, um, she's passed away now. Her husband, Donnie, they had a Baptist church in Tennessee, and my family went down to visit, and they were telling me, this is the first time I met them, they were Christians at a church, and I saw my Aunt Mary walk by, she walked by the bedroom where I was staying, my uncle and I were setting up our bed, and she said, Donnie, do you know where my cigarettes are? And I looked at my uncle, and she's not a Christian. Right? She's not a Christian. In Galatians 5:22 to 33, the Spirit produces His fruit in us when we walk by faith. Right? That comes after hearing, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That we, that's what we are trying to do, be perfected by the flesh. I'm going to prove to God that that grace thing took And right after that, he says, here's the fruit of the Spirit. So, what does that look like? What what is the fruit of the Spirit like? When fruits of a Christian are listed, what do they look like? Do's and don'ts, not primarily. Looking like a Christian is primarily a matter of our attitude and disposition. The kind of person we are. Not mainly our rules and regulations. And that is much harder to control, so we shove it aside. You can be as rude and as nasty and as unkind and impatient and unforgiving and bitter and angry as you want. As long as you don't drink. As long as you don't watch these kinds of movies. As long as you go to church at least one of the three times it's open a week. Right? If you vote this way. You, you can gossip all day long. Again, you can be bitter and hateful and nasty and completely unpleasant. Nobody can like you or like to be around you. But hey, I don't go there. I don't do that. And you're going to know about it because I'm going to talk about it a lot. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is what? Tell me. No law. That's the Bible. If you want visible marks of a believer, if you want to inspect fruit, there's the list. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. But we don't measure those. Because we know we can't produce those on our own. Right? Those, a lot of those are emotions, we think. And so, what, you know, you can't command emotion. You can't make me feel loved. Now you're getting it. Now you see, I can't do what God commands. Help me. Then everybody's weak and honest. And you know what that does? That creates a culture of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control. The self-control we're looking for comes from the Spirit by faith. You aren't going to be able to make a list. You aren't going to be able to track it. You don't need to know seven steps to be patient. 
you need to trust the Spirit that if He gave you a hundred steps or say six hundred and some laws that you still couldn't keep them. Good works that please God that are done in faith, oh, they'll flow out of that in spades. See, we ignore the list God makes and we make rules and we say, those that keep these rules, they're the Christians. They're in. But Galatians asks, what kind of person are you? Right? What kind of attitude do you have? What is your overall disposition as a person? What do people say about you when they're not in front of you and, and won't tell the truth? What do they really say about you? Are you loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and kind and gentle? And if you're not, why do you claim to be a Christian? What list are you using as the fruit that the Spirit is in you? How do other people describe you? What kind of person do your co-workers think you are? Would they use the Bible's words to describe you? What about the people that wait on you at restaurants? What would they think about you and the kind of person you are? What would they assume about you if all they had was that one lunch where you had to wait for a refill? What kind of a person are you? Because, see, when we don't get what you want, we get jabbed. What comes out? Well, who's living in you? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. That's what the Bible says the fruit of the Holy Spirit is. What about people that fix your car? And what about people that belong to the same clubs and organizations you do and you bump up against them in different areas of life? What do they think you're like? And by extension, then what do they think Christianity is all about? What kind of person do they think church makes you? What about your closest family and friends? What about the people that know you the most? What would they say about you if they knew they wouldn't get caught? What is it like to have to deal with you when you aren't getting your way? You want to ask what is lawful? Start right there. Because the Bible says Christ has set us free. Forgiven us of all of our sins. Granted us all His righteousness. What is that doing to you? What kind of person is that making you? Does the fruit of the Spirit describe you? Right, so forget about what is lawful. What is spiritual? Because that's how we live now. We walk by the Spirit. So what is spiritual, not what is lawful? Christ takes care of that. Does the fruit of the Spirit describe you? If the answer is no. If you are failing in any one of those fruits, you need to repent right now of your sin. Of your sin. Now do you see why we need Jesus so badly. We cannot do what God actually requires. See, now that Christ has come, the written code's out of the way. You don't have to worry about putting this cup here and the bread of the presence here and making sure this, this garment and the tassels. No, no, no. That's all, all taken care of. You shall have no other gods before me. Jesus worshiped God perfectly for you. Right? So now, you're supposed to be doing all of this out of the abundance of your heart. So how are you doing with the standard of Jesus? We need to quit dumbing down the law and pretending that we're these great Christians when the only evidence we have is our do's and don'ts. 
You see why we need Him so badly. Who can produce the fruit of the Spirit? How can, how can we feel love when we hate somebody? And let's not pretend for a second there aren't people that all of us don't hate. Well, I, I'm love, joy, peace. Am I a person of peace? You see the questions the Bible's asking? What have we made rules about? All this other stuff. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. If you want a list. If you want to live by lists. Well, then live by the Spirit's list. And not the one you make that you can conveniently keep. Who is like that? Who is like what Paul describes in Galatians? If if Christianity is all wrapped up in the kind of person we are and not mainly in our rules and regulations that we make up so that we look good, then we're in desperate need of a Savior here. Not just to forgive us, but to be righteous for us. We need someone else to be righteous for us. And let us just trust in Him that He will handle our behavior or we're done for. The Pharisees are putting Jesus to the test here. That's how crazy we get. And Jesus knows their thoughts, so He puts them to the question. He acts with full authority here. And remember, Jesus is never breaking the law in what He's doing, ever. He's the only one that gets what the law was actually after. And He performs it. Jesus not only doesn't commit adultery, Jesus doesn't lust. Jesus not only doesn't murder, Jesus doesn't lose His temper and hate people. If I had to look to whether or not I had conquered anger, to know whether or not I was good with God, I couldn't stand up here with a straight face. I couldn't do it. I struggle with my temper all the time. All the time. In those moments when I am sinning, if I look to my performance, if I look to my desire, to, because here's the thing, You don't desire in the moment of losing your temper to be a peaceful person and not lose your temper. You desire that later when you feel guilty. Who's being my Savior between when I mess up and when I get it? Who's going to save me in the in-between? Jesus isn't breaking the law here. He's not bypassing it. He's fulfilling it. He's doing it because we don't. You give us the Sabbath law, that man goes home with a withered hand. Because we don't work on Saturday, as the Sabbath was for them. But you put it in the hands of the Lord of the Sabbath. He goes home whole. And the law is fulfilled, not broken. He became our acceptable, perfect sacrifice by healing this man on the Sabbath. Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? That's the way you ask the question. Not what does the rule book say. Well, you're bypassing it anyway. You've got 39 supplements. And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. The Sabbath was given for us. God wanted us to be able to rest. Therefore, since Jesus actually knows God, He knows that the Sabbath was not given to keep us from resting by being worried about whether or not we're resting. But He gave us the Sabbath to actually rest. To actually rest. That's what we do if you put rest in our hands. We make it so hard to rest that we feel like we're sinning if we rest. And we make the idea of resting very unrestful. And so you have the Lord's own dear sheep being tended by the great shepherd Jesus who are supposed to be going in and out and finding pasture and being led beside still waters, instead constantly wondering if they're enough and have done enough. But all things have been made new. Even how we are made righteous before God. We are given rest so that we might do good as free people. 
Free people who aren't concerned about earning their salvation save lives, not take them. Heal withered hands, not keep them withered. Feed hungry people, not leave them hungry. That's what free people do. That's what people filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control do. Like Jesus, because that's who He was. We can only act in such a way when we're actually at rest. So Jesus came to give us that. We think the way you get people in line is by telling them what to do and making them so afraid to slip up that they're almost frozen. And then we trounce on them for not being zealous enough about their faith. Does that sound like an easy yoke or a light burden to you? To constantly be feeling like you need to do more. Does that sound like a light yoke, an easy yoke or a light burden? What did Jesus mean then in Matthew 11? As the representative of Jesus in the pulpit for you, my job is to assure you of your rest so that you will do good and not harm. So that you'll save lives and not destroy them. That's the new way of serving God that Jesus brought. You are at rest. All your forgiveness and righteousness have been provided. Now, may all your good works be done in joy and peace and confidence rather than in blood, sweat, and tears. Because that makes people bitter, jaded, resentful, and angry and tired. We get it backwards, and then we blame grace for not producing enough good works. It's grace's fault. You emphasize that rest too much, people aren't going to do good works. Okay, let's keep doing it the way we've always done it so that all we do when we get up here is beg you to do more good works. Because apparently, it's not taking. The Lord of rest is the one who is reigning. The Lord of rest is your Lord and Savior. And expect nothing less than this from those who refuse to take Jesus at His word. Verse 11. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Beloved, I am begging you to remember this so that you'll recognize a wolf in sheep's clothing when you hear them. Those who cannot rest in Christ will not let you do so either. Please remember that. But our salvation is not in the hands of those who watch and wait to pounce. It is in the hands of the Lord of rest who has finished it by His life, His death, and His resurrection. You see, the Lord of rest was made to work and suffer and die for you and me that we might have His rest You know what he's doing when he's telling you to take up your cross? He's telling the disciples, you want this, then you're going to follow me to Calvary where I'm going to die to give it to you. And you're going to have to say, I want no part of my own righteousness, of offering my own work. You're going to have to crucify that. Beloved, this is the gospel. This is Christianity right here. And it's the only way to produce the good works Christ has called us to. You don't have to worry about loving your neighbor as yourself as long as you're keeping the code over here. You don't have to worry about answering the tough questions of, you know, is it okay for me to get involved? Like, I, I want to see this person come to Christ, but in order to do that, somebody might see me here or there. Like, that's where the fight is. Not, I will not do this, and I will not do that, and I'll, and I'll just stay in my house and stay away from people. And You have to know that you're safe. You have to know that you're in His hands and not even you can snatch yourself from His grip. Or you will never have the one thing Jesus bought for you so that you would be free to serve Him without fear. Rest. Rest. Rest is the result of work. It was earned. Our rest. But not by us. Not by us. You see, somebody did the work. Rest doesn't come without work. That's a truism in life. We get to rest if we've done our work in life, right? We get time off if we are in the hours, usually. That's the world. That's the law. That's the way it works. You can rest when you've done enough and paid your share. And if you try to rest when you haven't paid your share, you'll be the scum of the earth in the minds of most people. 
But this gospel, what we claim as our truth, you see, it turns the whole world upside down, mainly by saying the law is not how you become righteous. So Jesus even came to turn the satanic, self-righteous ideas about rest and how it's earned. He came to turn those on their heads also. We rest because Jesus worked. We rest because the Lord of the Sabbath did all the work and the rest is real and you and I are meant to feel it and to have it. He came to set us free, to lighten our burden, to lessen our load so that we might have the peace and empty backs that allow us to bear others' burdens instead of our own, that allow us to carry others' loads. You have to be a free person to actually obey God. The commands in the New Testament are given to people who have rest, who are justified, who are righteous, who are perfect in the eyes of God, even while they're being sanctified, to become what? Like Christ. For that, you need an empty back. To actually do what God has commanded us to do. Bear one another's burdens. God, how can I bear other people's burdens? I got my own salvation to worry about. How can I worry about them keeping the faith? See? But you know, at least you don't go to that place or say those words. Right? We don't need to carry the weight of trying to earn our salvation. So let us go to Christ outside the camp. Bear only the load of serving others. Loving our neighbors. Because the real work of salvation, it's done. It's done. You're safe, believer. You're safe. The Lord of rest clocked in for us. The work is done. He's clocked out. It's finished. It's almost 2024. Been preaching for 15 to 20 minutes the last four Sundays, and you're thinking, here we are, back to the long grind, right? It's almost 2024. 2024. What if we were new this year? What if our church was new in 2024? The past is behind us. Christ is in front of us. There's only one man who ever put his hand to the plow without looking back. And his name is Jesus. There will never be another. So you and I better lay down our tools and receive the gift. Let the Lord of the harvest produce the fruits. You have faith in Christ and trust his spirit. Beloved, receive Christ for you. Receive Christ for you. Would you stand, please?